Welcome back to the next episode of the Music History Project. This is what you've all been waiting for, episode three of our Rhythm and Blues series. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey, hey, you guys, welcome back. Part three of Rhythm and Blues Pioneers on the Music History Project. I'm joined by my son, Jonah. Hello. Alex Rosner. It's good to be back. And my lovely wife, Suzanne. Hey. Hey, hey. Hey, We're all in the family today. This is so fantastic. Jonah has joined us for the summer to help us uh, do some pre-production of these podcasts. So I'm really grateful for his help. And Jonah, tell us the two stars of today's podcast. They are Dave Bartholomew and Earl Palmer. They were both referenced in part two, and so now we get to hear from them themselves. That's right. Lloyd Price was talking about them. That's right. Awesome. Very cool. So should we get right to it? Yes. We're going to start with Dave Bartholomew. What is he going to be telling us? He's going to give us some um, introduction to his life, how he got started, and how he met Earl Palmer, the other person we're going to talk about today. My mother and father were... uh happened to be Louis Bartholomew and Mary Bartholomew. Were they musicians? My father was a musician, he was a bass player. Oh, right. Uh, actually, uh, actually, I think he was a horn, horn you know, not the, the uh, you know, upright bass. And, uh, but actually, uh, I didn't actually get anything from my father's music because I was born uh, a little, little late for that. He was actually a barber, and uh, just one of those type of things, you know. Yes, I can remember when I first got my first on because I bought my first on myself. I was shining shoes. <laughs> it wasn't that much. What actually happened, uh, I think uh, it was in the pawn shop window, and the sign on it was $17, and that was like digging up your ancestors during that time when I was coming up as a kid. We were very, very poor. I mentioned my father and my mother, but I don't ever remember my father being with us, my mother and, and he were always separated. I gathered that late on in years when I noticed he would never come home. He had a barbershop in the area, but he, uh, every day my sisters and I would go over and he'd give us a, a few nickels or whatever it was during that time so we could get along. But my, my, but my mother worked hard every day and uh, she was actually the one that actually took care of us. It must have taken forever to save up $17. Well, I was shining shoes, selling papers, and plus I was uh, like bottles, you know, if the people would get a bottle, you know, and you could get, I think at that time it was one penny, now I think it's two pennies. So that was, oh, it took a long time, but if you never had anything, you don't miss nothing you never had. So I was always thinking, well, you know, I've got to be somebody. And uh, I went to a Catholic school, and it was three blocks away from my house. And when I grew up, I thought it was three miles. I had so many things on my mind. At that time, well, you got to be something, you got to go to school. I went to, it was a Catholic school. And uh, I always thought it was three miles away, but it was only three blocks. 
And when I realized, you know, that, uh, well, you know, uh, coming up in this world, and uh, Mrs. Peter Davis, who taught the late Lou Armstrong, also taught me. He was, uh, uh, I would say, he was one a customer of my father in his barber shop. And uh, when I got to be around about 10, 12 years old, he told my father, my father's name was Louis, he said, Louis, I'm going to take that bar. And he was the one who started me. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, he was very dedicated because he was working at the uh, WAIF bar's home in New Orleans, Louisiana. At that time, it was where all the bad bars would be. And uh, he treated us like we were bad bars, too. <laughs> Because he meant that you know that you know you got to actually grow up to be something in your life, and uh, that was embedded in, in me and uh, quite natural. That was uh, what I actually grew up with. One day you got to be somebody, and he always say this: a quote from him, you know, a black man has a hard road to travel in this segregated world, and you got to have something to do. You see, even after you get a little something on the ball, you still have to be somewhere to prove yourself. And those things that he, he actually drove that in our heads every day. And so quite natural with that, I think I came out on my own and I did the rest. Mm. Because he gave me all the fundamentals of trying to be somebody. Mm. Number one, get an education. But me, I didn't. I got to 11th grade and had to quit. Mm. But I did take correspondence course. When I was working for Lou, Imperial Record, Hollywood Boulevard, I took a correspondent course and said, well, Dave, you got to do something a little better than you're doing. You know, you got all these people under you, you never finish high school. So it was a thing called, uh, I would say, uh, American School. And I was going home on the plane one day and I took the correspondent course and I finished my high school. Wow, good for you. So all that, you know, trying to be somebody. Do you, uh, could you tell me the story about when you first met our good friend Earl Palmer? Yes, uh, I was working with Fats Pichon. Fats Pichon uh, had a young band. We all were young. I was 17 years old, and uh, we were working on, on a steamer capital. They have uh, those were boats that uh, the, the kids, I mean, the people would go on at night. Uh, they, the dancers would be on the boat, like from 8 o'clock until about 11, 11.30, all on the Mississippi River. So I was on the steamer capital. So what happened, uh, when I got off the steamer capital, I went into the army. I, I didn't know how to write. I always could play and read. And I, I didn't know how to write any music, you know, compose and that kind of stuff. I didn't really think about it. But Fats, we had a guy named Fats Pichon who owned the band. He was very instrumental and a, a great teacher. And he was great in everything. So what happened, I got a few little things for him. But when I got in the army, I was saved. I could play, I was playing, facing all the bands and getting off. And uh, like Earl Palmer said, they called me, uh, 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 he said leather lips. That's what Earl said. Oh, he could blow, you know, that type of thing. And I didn't see anyone playing because I did my homework. And uh, when I went out, I, you know, I, I was really out there. Although since uh, that time, you know, I was pretty success successful in New Orleans, Louisiana. And one thing about it, it's a small town, and you know, that seemed to be like a little animosity. Well, you've been on top a long time, that type of thing. And uh, some people say, oh yeah, he could play Bud, you know, that type of thing. But uh, when I played, I was very respected by all of the guys who were playing in around St. Louis, Missouri. I met the great Dizzy Gillespie. We happened to be friends for a long time. And, uh, and when I'd gone to 
and being Europe, I was very well respected with my band as well. And uh, all, and all, all, in, all is what I'm trying to say. You put it all to, put it all together. You know, with uh, being in the army band, that's why I learned how to write. A young man by the name of uh, he lives in Asbury Park, New Jersey, Mr. Abraham Malone. And what actually happened? Malone was young. We all were young. But on weekends, we wanted to go, you know, go out. And Malone said, well, you know, well, you don't have to go in a place. You better take this chart. You ought to learn how to write. Hmm. And sure enough, I took the chart, and I started. And when I got, uh, when I'd be writing, I was in the band, the Army band, 164. 196, AGF band, been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, what I, I took that, and uh, when I got out of service, I, all the little things I used to write in on, for little things, and we had musicians to try them out because we had a big band. Uh, we had, I think it was 50 of us in the band, in the big band, and we had an orchestra around 16, 17 pieces. Hmm. So what happened, I was writing little, little things like that, and when I started my band, it was by accident. I didn't have in mind that I, I was going to start a band. So I was sitting in a dew drop one night. That was our club where everyone went at. And I, I had my own clothes on and I sat in. And uh, quite naturally, I drawn off and I, a lot of attention playing because, like I mentioned, not bragging, but I was very, very good. And uh, this guy was sitting at, at, at the table with, it was a white guy sitting in the black club. In those days, a white guy could go anywhere with the black women, that type of thing. But you, uh, but the blacks couldn't go anywhere. But I mean, this was accepted in the nightclubs and things like that at the Dew Drop. So uh, what happened? Uh, he said, when I got off, he said, why don't you have a drink? Well, I've never been a drinker. So what happens? I said, he said, well, look, I'm going to start a club. Uh, uh, I've been working on a club now for quite some time. It should be finishing in about the next two months. Come up and see me. I said, oh, man, you know, just one of those things. Being a musician, that's, you know, that's how we talk because that's our life, you know. And I was young, you know, so what happened? Uh, show you enough. I went to see him. And uh, he said, uh, I want you to start a band. I, but what happened? I said, well, look, I'm playing with a band. I said, this this man I'm playing with. Happened to me, Mr. Buddy Charles. And his uh, son just passed away, the great Irvin Charles. He, he was a great, great guitarist. Well, anyhow, what happened? We got together, and at that time, the skill was $8 a night. You'd play all night for $8. I didn't say 80, 8. <laughs> and what happened, you know, I said, well, okay. So, uh, he said, he said, okay, I'm going to start you off at $30 a night for you. I didn't make it because I didn't know what to do. And he said, your men would make $18. He was just... Just that kind of guy, you know, beautiful person. Treated everybody like they were kings, you know. He said, oh, man, this is something. So, now I have, so I have a job. So he said, you got the first three months, that type. I said, oh, man, I'm going to get rich, you know. <laughs> so what happened, I got together with Mr. Clarence Hall. He come from the Hall brothers. This was a, a historical family for music. Uh, Mr. Clarence Hall played with me. I mean, I had played with them. Coming up, I played with different bands in New Orleans. When I was 12 years old, there was a Joe Rober show, Papa Stella stand I played with, 
uh, Claiborne Williams in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, uh, to Johnson, Tis Johnson, T-O-O-T-S Johnson in Baton Rouge. I could read, and on weekends they would send for me, and I would just go play their books and everything, you know. What happened to Mr. Clarence Hall, out of all the musicians that was around, he took me like a father. He would say, don't do this, don't do this, and so and so, and had that embedded in me from Mr. Dave. I wouldn't think about nothing else but music and try to get along in life. And uh, so, you know, I went to Mr. Hall. I said, Mr. Hall, uh, I've got a job offered to me. He said, well, what you going to He said, what you, what you want to do? And I said, well, I need some musicians. Well, I, during that time, it was war time, and most of the, uh, it actually was actually, it was over with, but some of the musicians, the younger musicians were still in the army or the Navy, whatever. So then I said, well, okay. So they helped me get the musicians and things like that. And I had played with Fats Fisher on, on the boat. And my friend who used to actually uh, tutor me around, he was 10 years older than me, so I went to get him too. In fact, everybody in the band was older than me. <laughs> so we started. And uh, how we, I happened to get Earl Palmer, uh, Dave Oxley, who was the drummer in my band, recommended by Mr. Clarence Hall. That happened to be Earl Palmer's uncle. One of those type of things. Well, they went as uncle. And he used to play shows and everything, and he was bringing Earl up. So what happened? Well, we wasn't making too much money after that. So he said, well, you know, I'm, I got a regular job at the bar's home. He was a, a, a keeper back there. So once you get Earl, I said, well, I don't you know. Earl come in a band, and uh, Earl had never played with a band like we had before. He had, was used to playing shows, you know, those with two or three pieces, that type of thing. But he had so much talent, you know, and what happened, you know, when we do dust and so and so, you know, well, the first, when he first started, he just wasn't with it because it was like I was actually coming out of the basic type thing with a small band, you know. Right. And I was writing all kinds of things on that man. So after I got hip to it, he was telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 we, and we just got to be friends. And, uh, and we sort of fell on hard times, you know, like uh, the Lenten season, like we're in right now in New Orleans. The Lenten season. That music is really nothing. It used to be, not now. This is modern time. Everything goes right now. You know that. Right. Uh, but happened during that time, there wasn't, wasn't too much going on. So what happened, you know, uh, so we, 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 when we said, well, okay, what we're going to do, we, we try to rehearse and get the band together and dust and so some of the things we wasn't doing. And I said, well, look, I'm going to leave this band. Ain't too much happening. I got to take care of my family. Well, said to me, Ain't nobody quitting this band. And num that starts with you. You ain't nobody leaving this band. It's going to get better. That was Dave Bartholomew, the great band leader, arranger, and songwriter in the early days of rhythm and blues that turned into rock and roll right before his eyes. I think that happened because he had a strong influence on all of that. I mean, think about some of the songs that he wrote with just one other person, Fats Domino. They wrote the enormous hit in 1955, Ain't That a Shame. They wrote Blue Monday and I'm Walking, which was another big hit for Fats Domino. Walking to New Orleans. Yes, it's me. I'm in love again. Let the Four Winds Blow and a couple of other songs for people outside of Fats Domino. A big hit for Little Richard was I Hear You Knockin'. 
A big hit for Elvis was One Night. In fact, Elvis also recorded another song called Witchcraft that the two of those guys wrote. So there was my working in an Elvis reference to a podcast. Thank you very much. And uh, a, a tip to these amazing songwriters who were there. We were talking about last time, Jonah, the influence of the New Orleans sound. These guys really helped develop that, along with a few other people like Professor Longhair and um, Lloyd Price, who we talked about. But um, the driving force of, I think, that movement was was the songs, those great songs. And the ones that I just mentioned were just a few that were really kind of the the uh, cornerstone of early rock and roll. So it's really neat to hear this story. And in the next few excerpts, we're going to hear from him and his um, explanation on the difference between blues and rock and roll. Now, everything deviated from Fats Domino. You should have a statue, biggest statue of liberty, in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of Fats. Uh, actually, uh, Fats Domino, not having a guy uh, too much upset about the musical business, well, he could help a lot. And instead of wanting somebody to come up and say, Fats, uh, you know, we, uh, that was great, you know. So, oh, yeah, man, I listened to It's not you, it's us. Like one of their copper meme with uh, well, yeah, thank you. The band, what's in me? The band's got it together. It take a lot of hard work to get that stuff together. I would love to hear uh, your response to this. One of my favorite quotes about uh, of Fats Domino was in a black and white film. I know, I know you've seen it because they play it a lot of times when they're talking about rock and roll. He's standing up. And they and in fact is asked about rock and roll, and he says, "Well, what they're calling rock and roll today is what we were playing in New Orleans 15 years ago." Right, he's right. Can you tell us a little bit about how you would define the style? Of rock music? and roll uh, is the same as rhythm and blues. Many many years ago, we used to call it black music. We had three or four different categories. You had pop. That was Benny Goodman, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra pop music. You had blues music, which they call it rhythm and blues, like B.B. King and that type of thing. Then you had Andy Quigg band, and you had Dinah Washington, but that was considered swing. You understand? Mm -hmm. Then what actually then Fats and I come along and I added a big beat. Instead of having those big chords where I had sound like I'm, I'm, I'm playing the nines and the thirteens. I don't know if you're musically inclined. I just had triads where the people could sing along with us. And I always think about the lead. Could they sing this? And that's what I did. And they didn't know what the hell to call it. And it went 99% white. And that was rock and roll. It was nothing but rhythm and blues with a beat. So wasn't there a period where it was strictly referred to as blues, like Muddy Waters played blues, he didn't play rhythm and blues? No, no, they added the rhythm later. Right, that's, what I'm, and they, that's where you come in. Yeah, right? they added the rhythm later. What I would say was actually rhythm and blues when we actually actually add the rhythm to it, you know. Right. That's, that's because Muddy Waters just was down home, you know, that time, you know, mm -hmm. with four or five pieces like that, maybe not that many. But they were original, and they had a, a, a real 
in other words, influence on, on, on a musician like me coming up. Right. Because I always felt that was, you know, I said, oh man, I don't like that. Would come to find out this was authentic music. Mm -hmm. And we built on that. That would actually happen if he had Buddy Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, Buddy Johnson had a hell of a band in there. They were actually playing rhythm and blues, but with, with horns and things like more or less. Not a, a little different from, from basic. Mm -hmm. But what I did, with the band, I would have the rhythm going and have the licks from the, from the, from basic type bands, from the swinging type thing, you know, right. which is swinging jazz. I think just I just think it's left up to the individual, what you want to call it. Because mm. what I want to tell when I use the big band, you know, I'm I'm playing all our stuff. We're supposed to be rock and roll, mm. but I'm, I got a big band arrangement on it. Mm. They're swinging, like uh, especially like uh, I'm walking around. Right. Yeah, right. It's a good point. Yeah, it's a very good point. The, the thing that always struck me about the stuff that you did with Fats is it's happy. It's always upbeat, happy music. Yeah. Well, was that your intent? The intent was to actually make it happy and try to sell it. And uh, we were very lucky uh, that we actually had uh, quite a few um, hits like that, and uh, we would keep it up. And uh, sometimes uh, I would go, go Eddie Ray, who used to be our... I'm a man actually uh, going around, uh, change distributors and things like that. And also, uh, he was actually an a r man for Imperial sales, I mean. So uh, some of the uh, distributors would say, well, when you guys going to change? So Eddie would say, it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I mean, that type of thing, which was true. But with, I found out uh, later years that uh, they, that was really uh, what, what they wanted at that time, and we would be taking a chance trying to change it. Mm. Interesting. Well, do you think that um, that happiness or expressing that feeling of happiness was easier to sell? I mean, even when Fats was singing about I'm saving all my love in jail for you, it was still upbeat. You know, the, the message could have been somber, but... Uh, he presented it in a way that was very upbeat. Do you think that helped you sell the songs? Uh, to be frank, uh, the tune you're talking about, I didn't think the words meant anything. 90% hmm. of the time, the kids really wasn't paying attention. They were looking for, for an escape from uh, Frank Sinatra and, and uh, Duke Ellison and that type of thing. They were looking for something that they really, like they're doing right now. Hmm. I happen to meet them. I, I, I listen to that. They really don't have a big, big beat. But what they're selling and the girl, he's telling the girl, you know, more or less, you know, I want to go to bed and that kind of thing. That's, that's what it's all about. I think we were selling music. And really, it was a different thing, and that's what they wanted. That's interesting. Can you address just a little bit, um, I know you probably can't be too specific, but I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the songs in your catalog. Uh, perhaps the ones that you're most fond of or ones that maybe were... Uh, a surprise to you in terms of success. Like, did you think uh, "Ain't That a Shame" was going to be that big a hit? That was the biggest surprise in the world. Uh, ain't that a shame? I really can't tell you really what's so that. No more than the opening sentence. "Ain't that a shame?" I think that's really what what actually sold the thing. You know, didn't uh, they uh, would sit back and think about? It. They don't didn't say, well, what made it? Ain't that a shame? You made me cry. You say goodbye. You, well, that's not a real big story. 
you know, like a girl run to her father or mother and say, he, he hit me or something like that, you know. But we're not saying that. See, you made me cry. Everything is on the individual. When you say goodbye, just the same thing with 99% of things were uh, recorded in those days was about a diamond ring or, or, or a brand new Cadillac. That, that was the thing during those times, or, 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 or my, my, my beautiful suit, you know, that type, expensive clothes. I forget what you used to call them clothes. Uh, the suits we used to wear a long time ago, shiny suits. All the musicians, we used to talk about that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But I, I, it used to be about women. It's still about women, but it's a different approach. You put it all together, I say that technically Fats and I, we were very lucky, but we come around uh, around at the right time, you know, like some people say, well, yeah, you guys were hanging out there for a long time. When are you going to come in? We was hanging out there, waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, we added a big beat, I don't know why. So that was just one of those things. Was that big beat keeps you rocking in your seat? Was that one yours? Uh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that. Uh, that what happened, uh, Lou Chen was the... Uh, President of Imperial Record Company, and we—I had a date in Houston. In uh, wait, wait, I, had, I was going to uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I think I told you that, right? And he said uh, the man is going to give you fifty thousand dollars for the theme of the Big Beat. I said, "Well, how, what, what do you want? How do it go?" He said, "He left that up to you." So we were working in Jackson, Mississippi that night. So I always had a tape recorder in the car. So Mr. Hall, I'll tell you about Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall was driving. And when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, I had finished the tune. The big beat, da 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 And when I came back, I sent him a little tape. I had that with Frank on the piano so he could hear it. He said, man, that's just what I want. And he paid me. I only got $50,000, but I know it made millions. But that's what he told me in front what he wanted. It wasn't Lou Chud. It was the guy producing the thing. You're listening to the Music History Project. And right now we're still talking about Dave Bartholomew. Yeah, part three of our three-part series on the pioneers of rhythm and blues. And he certainly was a pioneer. You know, it's really amazing to me that in uh, June 2019, um, when he passed away at the age of 100, the um, accolades that were bestowed upon him by contemporary artists at the time really kind of blew me away. I had maybe thought that he might have been forgotten or, uh, you know, just outlived so many of the people that he influenced and worked with. But that is not the case at all. Um, they had a big parade in New Orleans, as they often do for uh, funerals. Um, sort of a dirge going to the cemetery and a big party atmosphere coming away. And um, one of the things I thought was really cool, I mentioned one of the songs he wrote with Fats Domino, the family, including his son Ron, who I got to know, made sure that the funeral took place on a Blue Monday, which I thought was pretty touching. Well, speaking of his son and his family, I think that... Uh, the next segment of Dave's interview talks a little bit about their opinion of his due. Yes, exactly. He gets passionate about uh, what his father has done and exactly what his father deserves credit for. 
And I think in the end, he got it. Uh, it was so nice to be uh, on hand when uh, Ron got up on stage at the Grammy uh, Merit Awards to accept the Lifetime Achievement Award for his father. Well-deserved. So let's go back to our final segment of Dave Bartholomew. In regards to music back at that time, and in, in, in regards to my daddy being a pivotal figure in American music, you have to understand that he also was trying to make a living. It was not, it's not like he set out to be some great songwriter or a great musician. Well, he, wa- he wanted to be a great musician because he felt that was a way that he could feed his family. At the same time, when he started to get a taste of success, he became a business person at that time. And he's always been, my dad is, a, is known as a shrewd businessman. If you talk to Earl Palmer about it, he'll let you know that. But it's, just, it's almost like he knew the direction that they were going into. Mm. He knew that they were tasting success, but he can't sit here and tell you the story. And I'll put this on record that the story that basically Little Richard gives you all the time. Well, I never got paid this and that, because that's not true. Mm. It's not true. He did get paid. Right. And now he probably didn't get what he deserved, right. but he's been blessed and, and you know, he's made great monetary uh, resources from his songwriting. Mm. So that's been a blessing in order to, uh, to take care of us and, and help the family out, of course. You know, that was, that was the whole deal. Right. It's not like he set out to be a great songwriter. Right. Or not. Right. You know, right. and another thing I want to say, uh, just a lot of times I just do a lot of reading about my dad. I was always ambitious from a kid. You know, That's true. kind of seeing him on TV and different things. I was always asking questions. Well, why we didn't own a limousine and just, just crazy <laughs> stuff. As a kid, well, t- still today, like a lot of times, I mean, maybe 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, I might get on the Internet and I just pull up something just to see if they change the bio or if it's something I don't like, I'll make, I'll write a letter or something to whatever, like maybe AM, uh, I think it's AMG on the Internet or Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So Dave Bartholomew is a pivotal figure in American music. As long as I'm living, as long as my children, my child rather, is living, I'm gonna keep this thing going on as far as I can because it's history. Next, we're gonna hear from Earl Palmer, a drummer who is on such classic hits as Loudy Miss Cloudy and Tutti Fruity. For the last 12 years, I've been playing with my own trio in various clubs around LA. Not too many, because we've had one place for eight or nine years and this recent place for two years, and I don't like to move around a lot, you know, but uh, people ask me, are you you're supposedly the most recorded drummer in history? I said, well, that's arguably so. And they said, well, are you the most recorded jazz drummer? I said, no, I said, Billy Higgins. And they would say, sometimes, who's Billy Higgins? I said, he's the most recorded jazz drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, well, why? I said, well, uh, because he travels all over the world, you know, he's invited all over the world on jazz, to make jazz albums with various artists. And, and uh, so then are you the most recorded uh, rock player considering you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I said, well, that's arguably because it, I'm, I think so, but I'm not sure it could also be Hal Blaine. And they said, and how are you the most recorded drummer? I said, because Hal don't play much jazz and Billy don't play no rock at all. <laughs> the idea to live and do well is to play it all like it's your favorite music. So now I'm playing what I want, to back to jazz again. But uh, those, the, you know, getting put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame showed how hard I worked to get those seven kids through school and that's what I'm most proud of. You know. 
Was the, the drum your first instrument? No, as a matter of fact, my first instrument, I always fooled around with the drums, but my first instrument was a B-flat Albert system clarinet because I wanted to play tenor like all of the tenor players got the girls. They're right in front of the band and they're gyrating around and they get the girls. The drummer's way in the back. By the time he finishes packing up, all the girls are gone. <laughs> so I wanted to play tenor. And a professor, Turo, who was one of Louis Armstrong's instructors in New Orleans, he was a very old man by this time, told my mother, I said, I won't teach him tenor until he learns to play the clarinet. So I started on a B-flat Albert system clarinet. And by the time I finished the required lessons that he thought I should have to get a tenor, somebody stole a clarinet and we had nothing to trade in on the tenor. So that's how I went to drums. All the while I was tap dancing in vaudeville with my mother and my aunts. And uh, then after I got out of the service, vaudeville and tap dancing was pretty much passe by then. So I decided to play the drums. I always liked them and fooled around with them. So that's how I became a professional drummer. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your mom and her sisters. Well, my mom and my Aunt Nita and my Aunt Leonora, as a matter of fact, they all passed away now. I'm the oldest member left in, in the family now. And, uh, but they were dancers since they were teenagers in New Orleans. And when I became four years old, when they started me to dance, and I used to dance around New Orleans and the French Quarter for tips, like they're still doing a lot. And uh, from that, I got with a bunch of guys, and we started making and needed somebody to play the drums. They said, well, you play drums, so I play the drums, but I had no drums. So we made drums out of orange crate and lard can covers for cymbal, piece of inner tube for foot pedal spring, spool of thread for the beater, and that, a pencil for the stick to hit the orange crates. And we made drums, and we always had parts, for one thing. <laughs> we made our own drums. And so I played the jazz. I might say my first professional job, but depending on how much tips we made. <laughs> but uh, that, was, that was fun when you think back on it, too. Making the drums, the crude drums that we made, that's, that's how the old slaves started jazz. Making, uh, copying the, the music they heard in the living rooms of the slave uh, places, the antebellum mansions, and copying that crude in, you know, British swing quartets that was, we had no music of our own, so to speak. And it, in copying that, that's how I always said ragtime started, because that was so ragged, and it's copying this music on their penny whistles and their bones and stuff like that. And it became ragtime from being so ragged. <laughs> what was the vaudeville circuit like when you were in it? Well, it depended on where you were in those days. We're talking about back in the 30s and so forth, depending on where you were. When, when we were doing the Warner's circuit or the Keith Orpheum circuit, we had a tutor. It was a, a lady who was a comedian on the show. Rookie Davis was her name, but she was an accredited teacher. So uh, she was tutoring me so I wouldn't have to go back to school. And other times when we were down on the T-O-B-A, and I won't repeat what that is. I'm sure you know what that is. I don't know how many kids you might show this to. Uh, nowadays, they'll get a big laugh out of it, but it's still something you don't relate to anyway. But uh, during that time is when I went back to school in New Orleans, so either out here to Los Angeles to my uncle, who's also my godfather, my mother's old, oldest brother. So consequently, most of my schooling was in California. 
and uh, that's how I, uh, you know, how it was on the road doing vaudeville, depending on where you were. It, that also depended on where I went to school, the conditions, you know. But it was quite a life for a kid, uh, meeting different kids all the time, you know, and I slept in a rack of the bus while my mother and I was sitting up in those seats, and when we'd get to a town, they would, you know, rather than rent a hotel room to do four shows and then leave that night again, they'd get in early as they could and on the big carpeted lobbies in the theater, this is where they slept for a few hours until time for the matinee. I had slept all night in the luggage rack, so I was out in the town meeting the kids. There was a lot of experiences. Got trapped up on, in New Mexico somewhere, I got trapped up on the hill and my mother cried. She was so afraid I was gonna fall, I was afraid to move. But after I got down, she wasn't very afraid then. She wore me out. <laughs> she's a great lady. Yeah, she's, she taught me so much, so much about life and music before I even became a musician. And uh, I always felt I had a little advantage over the average drummer learning to play the instrument because being a dancer, I already knew the structure of the song, the bridge, when it was a tag and extra bars and so forth. And nowadays, if you're playing fours and all of a sudden your last four bars is a six bar thing, if you don't know the tag of that song, you, you, you play five bars or seven bars, you know. But that was an advantage I think I had over many, many drummers having to learn the instrument. Because you can't learn to swing the next best thing is to know the structure of the tune. You'll know where to change colors, you know where the bridge is, you know where to change the cymbal so you don't have the same cymbal running through the whole, all of the soloists and the whole song. And those changes of colors is, is what's uh, very important to that instrument that don't play any melody. Changing colors and knowing the structure of the song is very, very helpful. I try to impart that to young players all the time. Know the song as much as you can so that you feel comfortable where there's extra bars or short bars and whatever, you still feel comfortable if you know the structure of the tune. So I try to impart that a lot and it's, some, it's very difficult now to young kids who are, who are locked in playing almost nothing but rock and roll. There isn't any eight bars, eight bars, a bridge and eight bars. It's just mostly the same chord running through and they get an awful lot of music out of one chord now in some of those rock tunes, believe me. But it's, it's their ability to create, really. You know, no music is as good as that is if it ain't some good people creating it. And uh, the, young, the young people are really doing that. And, and jazz has come back because of the young people a lot. They're the ones going out. The older people are not going out very much, you know, to, to those kind of things. But it's the kids who are, who are some who are a little more music and want to hear a little more chord structure, a little more song, melody, and so forth, are the ones that's keeping jazz alive, really. And you find an awful lot of the young players nowadays are developing into good jazz players also, as, as before you found a guy played rock and roll, that's all he played. And it's the intensity that's a little different. It's different. Uh, different means of intensifying tunes between rock and jazz. So this, those are things that you mostly have to feel as opposed to learning. You can learn it, but you're feeling it is something different and understanding how, how you feel when you feel that way. But that's, that's diminishing more and more when I listen to the young drummers. 
and there's some awesome young drummers out there now. And now and then at the club, we get some fine young guys that I don't know who they are from Adam, but they're really awesome. Many of them come through there. I'd like mm -hmm. to hear, if you wouldn't mind, um, how you first got associated with uh, David Bartholomew. Well, I had an uncle who worked at that boys' home that Louis Armstrong used to go. I had two uncles that worked out there, Milne Boys' Home. We used to call it, for some reason, we used to call it Jones' Home when I was a kid. Then we later found out what the real name was, Milne's Boys' Home. But when Louis Armstrong went there, it was called Jones' Home. And then later, I had an uncle who was Dave Oxley. Not really an uncle, but everybody that used to be involved with my mother. The men were uncles, the women were aunts. So uh, Dave Oxley was playing with Dave Bartholomew's band. So when I decided to play drums, I started playing. I first was playing in the French Quarter with Harold Dejon, who was another uncle, and his wife Rose was an aunt from Vaudeville with my mother and aunts. So I was playing with Harold Dejon at a, the old Opera House bar, strip club on Bourbon. And then when uh, Dave Oxley, my so-called uncle, and Dave Bartholomew got into some kind of beef, and he asked me, he'd heard about me playing, and because I'd go sit, on, sit in with bands and want to play some jazz, because what do you play on the strip club? But boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, bum. All you had to do was move with the stripper, and you were in. <laughs> and, and being in, in show business also helped that, too, helping have that kind of untaught knowledge, you know. So he asked me if I wanted to join the band. I said, I'd love to. I said, that's how I joined Dave's band. And that's how we started doing all of the early records, you know, the rhythm and blues. Did you have a reputation at that point in and around the city? Yes. Was he already pretty well known? Who, Dave? Yeah. Fairly well. Mm. You're just beginning to, to get known. Mm. And, uh, and uh, I thought you would ask me, did I have a rep? No. <laughs> I started playing with Dave, and we did a little jazz, and I was in the downbeat poles there, and that was a popularity thing, because I was in awe of everybody I saw in that up above me, which everybody else was, but that was a local thing, you know. Uh, but uh, after playing with Dave, we started doing all those Fats Domino and Little Richard records. And I met two drummers that turned me around about how to play. And that was Panama Francis and Big Sid Catlett. And he came down to New Orleans to work on a movie, I think it was called Pete Kelly's Blues. He came from New York and I met him and Teddy Buckner from LA and those guys. And they both told me the same thing that was kind of ironic. They said, two things you should learn. First is remember what your instrument's made for. It's made to keep time. It's not a solo instrument. If you play a solo on it, it's great. If it's out of time, it's lousy. And I never forgot that I, you know, would relate that to kids because it really isn't. It's become what people would consider it's a solo instrument, but it's still basically an accompaniment instrument. And drummers are getting proficient enough that they can play great solos on it. Some, some, some of the great drummers who are great soloists, who I was very lucky and happy to know. And that was Louis Belson and Buddy Rich. And, uh, but it's really not a, basically a solo instrument. And I never forgot that. And he said, when you can't hear anybody in the band that you're playing with, you're too loud. That's the other thing. And when, you, when you're too loud, I don't care what you're playing, it's in bad taste because you're not playing any melody. I said, well, that makes sense. 
makes a lot of sense. But they are, I got that information from them. And I had met Panama in Houston, Texas, when he was with Cab Calloway. And that's the first thing I asked him, well, you know, the old cliche, what will you say to a young drummer? Get out of my way, boy. <laughs> 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 that's what Buddy would say. <laughs> but no, he said, they always were willing to talk to somebody, you know. If, if they felt that you really were interested, they'd take the time to talk to you. But uh, they, were, they were very, very helpful to me in, in what I maintained from them and able to impart to young, young drummers. And these are very basic things about the instrument that you shouldn't forget. It's, if you can't hear everybody in the band, you're too loud. And if you can't play a great solo in tempo and don't worry about how much you play, because in film you do a lot of solos. That's, it's a solo because nobody is playing. But nobody listening to what you're playing because it's behind the chase. It's just background for the chase music. You know what I mean? It's a solo. Nobody playing but you. And many times it's that live. But if you, if you realize that you're just playing behind the chase, this ain't your chance to be another buddy rich. It's just play something loud and exciting because you're not drowning anybody out and you're adding excitement to the chase. So I would always say that's the only time to be loud and play whatever you want, but still play in time. If you don't, them click tracks are going to tell you you're not playing in time. And you screw up the whole cue, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's Shelley Mann was very helpful to me in uh, in doing film work. And old man John, John Williams' father, was very helpful in showing me a little bit about percussion when I had to do a few things. Sometimes I had a few things to do, like in some of the hardest work was doing the uh, cartoon music. And old man John would always help me with that. Tune the temps for me and I say, I can't do that. That's, he said, yes you can, go on, I'll do it, don't worry. And I made extra money doing that, but it's all through the goodness of them, mostly because I would not ever say I'm a percussionist. And they hated a lot of guys out there just to make a little extra money getting doubles would say they're a percussionist. And they hated these guys. But I would always say I'm not a percussionist because I didn't want to be embarrassed. Being the only black guy there, I didn't want to lay an egg, you know what I mean? So I'd never say I was a percussionist, and, and it helped me all the time. One of the meanest but greatest percussionists that was out there used to help me tremendously, Lou Singer. And he would cuss all the other guys out something terrible because he was the best, best timpanist that I know of, that I've ever heard, Lou Singer. And his, those guys were really nice to me, really nice. Especially Lou and Ralph Hansel and old man John Williams, John Williams' dad. That's a whole percussion family there. Except John. John never played percussion. His father and his other two brothers were percussionists, drummers and percussionists. John was more stuck on jazz piano. He always. Another great composer, since we're speaking of those guys, that was a jazz piano. Andre, you know Andre Previn. Yeah, great piano players. They played, uh, Andre played with Shelley Moore prior to that when Shelley left Stan Kenton. He played with them more because they were already pretty much established as good jazz pianists because they had a lot of classical background in their playing. And as we all know, it later came out, their classical background. But Shelley was so wonderful to me. There's some, some stories where he helped me. He sent me on, an, on a network TV show 
with Pete Rubolo and told him, uh, don't worry, I guarantee you he'll do it, Pete. If he don't, I'll come back and I'll overdub everything he did. And uh, luckily I satisfied Pete. And he just called me a few months ago. He's going to come by the club. He never did. I understand he got a little sick. But he was a very nice man. He was very nice to me. Once I did the job right and saved Shelley's integrity, <laughs> <laughs> we were slated to have lunch the day he passed. But he didn't, didn't get away from Disney. He was at Disney doing a film. We were going to meet at a musician's favorite eating place in Hollywood, Musso Frank's. And that's the last I saw him. There's some great stories about him. The main one is somewhat long. It's, I don't want to get into it. It's kind of long. And also, it might start crying right here in the middle of the interview. <laughs> but uh, it's a wonderful story. He's, he's, a, he's a remarkable guy. One of the funniest people. A short story that we were doing that second roots thing. I think Shelley worked on the first. I didn't. I worked on the the second generation, the root second thing. And I forgot who the Quincy wasn't doing the music on the first one. Uh, another great composer that we worked for a lot. Anyhow, so uh, we were alternating, you know, on, on the drums. So, because I worked for this guy and so did Shelley. So he hired us both so we could make a double on a little percussion here and there. And so, uh, anyhow, uh, he asked Shelley. Shelley was playing at the time. He said, Shelley, I didn't write anything there. He said, I don't really know what I want, but I want something, you know, from like the 30s era, you know, so, you know, feel like that. You know, all of the music was written, except he hadn't written anything for the drums. So, so he said, you understand what I mean, Shelley? He said, yeah, from the 30s? He said, yeah, he said, I can do that. And he said, by the way, uh, what month? <laughs> Shelley. That's Shelley for you, boy. Hilarious, man. Off the top of his head, he can come, what month? <laughs> All day he was coming up with those kind of lines. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, uh, the transition in those early days when you were doing some recordings. Um, you mentioned, um, I think it was when you were with Dave, he started a relationship with Fats Domino, and then you started recording with Fats Domino. Is that about how... That well, every time I record, I never worked with Fats that wasn't with Dave's band. Mm. Many people get the impression that you're on these guys' records, you're in the band. The only time I was ever on the road with Fats, it was the first tour he made, and it was Dave's band. And uh, Lou Chud set up this tour for the band, which was a flop tour. And as a matter of fact, uh, Fats wasn't supposed to be the headliner of that tour. The, the person who was supposed to be the headline was Jewel King. A girl singer named Jewel King, she had a record that was bigger than Fats' record called Three Times Seven. And Fats' big record was Detroit City and the Fat Man. So she was going to be the, the, main, the headliner of the tour and Fats was going to open for her. But she felt that she could make a demand from Lou Chert of Imperial Records that she wanted her husband's band to make the tour. Jack Scott, who was her husband, had a, had a band, New Orleans, a good band. But Dave worked for Imperial. He found talent for Imperial and, you know, and things like that. And, and he was on the label of Imperial. And it's just, he, what Lou, the whole idea, Lou wanted an Imperial Records tour. It was Gene, Jewel King, Fats Domino, and Dave Bartholomew, which is a band that played on both their records. And, 
the two biggest artists he had at the time. So, and it was a big flop too, and I think it was mostly because of places he called himself wanting to introduce the music to the people. In Las Vegas, those people didn't want to hear that kind of music, you know? And we wasn't the kind of attraction you'd put on the strip. As a matter of fact, we couldn't even go on the strip then. So this happened in North Vegas. Nobody cared. Everybody was working on the strip and hearing that. They didn't want to go out to hear the music. Flopped. The biggest crowd we had was in L.A. Because most of the black population there was from Louisiana. <laughs> so that was a big part there. And uh, everywhere else was a flop. And I think it was the marketing was wrong. But uh, that's the only time I ever was on the road with Fats. And it wasn't his band. He didn't have a band then. I used to, when I used to, when Dave would get off the bandstand, I'd kind of run the band. To this day, we call each other Chief. And uh, I used to let Fats come up and play some boogie-woogie piano when we were playing down in the seventh ward where, in the ninth ward where Fats lived before he started. And Dave would raise heck with me, you know. Man. Why you let him come up there? I said, well, you off walking around. We tired. We got to take a break, you know. He said, but don't let him up. And I don't know why. I did, you know, but uh, I never really found out why. But anyway, um, I'd let Fats come up. And then uh, they needed a, a band. They had a little semi-pro football team in my neighborhood and called the Hawks. I played a little bit with them, but they had no hospitalization if you get hurt. You didn't have to be so big then, which I'm not big enough at all now. But at that time, you know, you get hurt, you can't play. You know, you know it made no money and that. It was just fun. So they needed a, a, some music. A guy named Martin had a crystal club. And we had a little social and pleasure club in the, in the neighborhood. And uh, so I said, well, man, I know this guy plays. He, the people love him when he plays. And he hired Fats to come and play there. And he got his cousin on guitar, his two cousins on guitar, uh, Harrison Verrett. And then the other ones are bass. Uh, 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 Guy that first started calling him Fats, Billy, Billy Diamond, played bass. And he got Walter Nelson, who he called to New. He's, he's Louis Nelson's half son. And uh, did he get, uh, I don't think he got Cornelius Coleman then. Or maybe he did. Maybe he did get Cornelius. Because the band that Fats took on the road was. Pretty much like the old band, except for Billy Diamond and Harrison. Harrison did go out the first with him. But I never went on the road with Fats except on that, that trip with Dave. But I did all of his records, you know. Only couple I didn't do is when I left New Orleans, he did a couple of things right after that. But uh, all of the records that he did, I pretty much played on all those records. All right, you guys, we are listening to the third part of our Rhythm and Blues Pioneers here on the Music History Project and the interview from 2002 with the great drummer Earl Palmer, who was not just a great drummer, but honestly a great human being. I really enjoyed his friendship over the years. He never hesitated to answer even my silliest of questions about his career, and um, in the late 90s, there was a petition that went around amongst fans. Now, remember, this is really before the internet and email was really um, as prominent as it had become uh, just in a few years. But in the late 90s, uh, a petition was started to have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recognize sidemen, uh, folks behind the 
original or the most famous performer, such as Elvis, as an example. And that got my attention. So I not only wrote on the petition, but I suggested other names that they did not have, including Scotty Moore and Earl Palmer. And I'm very, very proud to say, not that it was all up to me. I was one of 100,000 people, I think, on the petition. Uh, But in August of 2020, both of those gentlemen were included into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as sidemen and so well-deserved. Because when I think about early rhythm and blues and I think about that beat, you know, there's a groove that goes there. And Earl Palmer was the groove without a doubt. Um, But I, I also should make sure that we have a little shout out to Charles Connor, who was the very first drummer for Little Richard, who also had that groove and also had that feel. His interview is also available on uh, the NAM website. Uh, we interviewed him just a few years ago. Uh, but back to Earl, I, my other comment about him is just the depth in which he was able to apply that groove. It wasn't just rhythm and blues. He played on hits from everybody from Frank Sinatra to Ray Charles to Neil Young, Dizzy Gillespie, El, uh, Elvis Costello, and Tom Waits, to name just a few. So an amazing, versatile drummer. And I can't say enough about what a great guy he was. I have a quick question. Oh, uh, you referenced this man, and also in our next and last excerpts, uh, Mr. Palmer also talks about this man. But who is Little Richard? <laughs> Little Richard? Little Richard was a very early pioneer in rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Uh, he did things quite differently. He was very flamboyant. He uh, wore makeup and did his hair up into a big, um, I'm not even sure what you call it, uh, It looked like a woman's wig. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, And very flashy, you know, putting his feet up on the keys as he's playing and jumping on the piano and playing it backwards and screaming and doing things like wop, 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 bam, boom, stuff like that. Uh, And having an enormous amount of hits. I mean, one after another um, and very influential. And the thing about him was he... We were talking an earlier episode about uh, Betty Wright and how she started off in gospel music and was a little bit torn. Her mother wasn't too approving of her singing secular uh, music. And Little Richard went through this back and forth, back and forth. You know, he was in an airplane that nearly crashed and he came and said, "Okay, no more rock and roll. I'm just going to be a devout uh, preacher. And so he was a preacher for a while. And. So many fans said, well, wait a minute, can't you do both? We'd love for you to continue to sing. And so he embraced that. But I think it was difficult for him. Uh, You know, I think that's one of the things we kind of think uh, we don't think twice about anymore about, okay, it's rock and roll. Rock and roll started and it was really easy. If you recently saw the Elvis movie, it wasn't easy. It was hard on him. It was hard on Little Richard. It was hard on a lot of people because they weren't doing the normal thing. They weren't confiding with what popular music was. And uh, the establishment wanted to say that was just a flash in the pan to somehow justify that, okay, it's going to go away soon, so don't worry. But really what it was was a huge influence on the next generation of people. And Little Richard was certainly one of those. I hope I answered your question. It did. So now let's hear what Earl Palmer has to say about Little Richard and his other thoughts on um, music in general. Well, all of the record companies from out in L.A., like Aladdin, um, Imperial, 
specialty, modern, class. They'd bring artists to New Orleans to record. And after Fats, that's when they came, Fats and some of the New Orleans artists, that's when they started bringing Little Richard down. Bumps Blackwell used to come down with Richard, or sometime Art Root would come down himself. Pappy, as they called him, he'd come down himself. And I later found out that all those things that, that were hit records we did with Richard, they had been done already with, with his group. But Art Root wanted to release the ones that we did. We didn't know that they had all been recorded. So uh, with his group, the Upsetters, which was a bunch of nice guys and good players, good players. And Richard was kind of upset about that because he had a lot of confidence in his band and he's very loyal to him and still is to this day. He is, he's a wonderful guy. But Art Roof said, no, I want, I want these guys' version of it because we were making all the hits and it had a little of that New Orleans sound, a little different from just plain rhythm and blues. So uh, this, these are the ones he used, but they had just about every one of those. Well, up to the point when, you know, he started doing the records with us. All of those first tunes we did with him had already been recorded with the Upsetters. Yeah. Richard was somewhat hurt about, about that too, because all along he was telling the guys, when I make it, you're all gonna make it. So it was kind of upsetting to him that now he's made it and they're gonna have him record with somebody else. So he didn't, I can understand his feeling about that. Because the guys were all, all good guys in his band. And they loved Richard. They, they worked hard behind him. and They were a, kind of a family unit, really. But anyway, uh, that transition all happened. That was all happening in New Orleans. And when I had to leave New Orleans, I came out here because I said, I can't stay here no more. This isn't the only way. I had been, you know, I traveled a lot, and that wasn't the only way a man could live, is the way. So, uh, and then I had met my second wife. So we moved to California. The best move ever happened to me. Just as a, a couple of points, um, what, are, what are your personal thoughts about Little Richard's importance in the early days of rock and roll? Well, like, like most, like a lot of artists, Little Richard was very instrumental in rock and roll, particularly what came out of England, the British version, like him and Chuck Berry, and the Beatles, the, one of the greatest all-time groups in the history of music. They readily, I don't know about now, but they did admit enough who they copied was Chuck Berry and Little Richard. And uh, that's how important their music was. Because it was exciting and the Beatles wasn't exciting like that, but they were a lot more musical. I always had a respect for them because they kind of revolutionized music. In the middle of that hard, heavy acid rock and, and that kind of a sound, they got those kids to listen to pretty songs, man, like Yesterdays and stuff like that. For whatever reason, man, maybe because just it was them, but they got them to listen to pretty melodies. And they went back to melodies with bridges and stuff like that to the songs, you know? Not just rock montunas. And they kind of revolutionized music. That's one of the reasons they were so big. Because they brought music back to the older people and the kids. The kids followed them because they were the Beatles, but the older people listened to the songs because they were melodic. Because I, for one, like many of their songs. Yesterday's was one of the very, very beautiful ballads. Not to, you know, not to mention the emotional ballads that uh, told stories about uh, different things like that, but just from a musical standpoint, songs like Yesterday's were very pretty songs. 
when you reflect back on your musical career, what also stands out is the two or three important things that you're proud of. One of the main things I'm proud of is that I learned right away that I was good, but you don't have to be the best at any kind of music. If you want to make a living at music, it's to play your instrument as well as you can and don't play anything with tongue in cheek. You've got to play it all like it's your favorite music. And you work. And with seven kids, you needed to work. And it proved to me that that was right. Play it all like it's your favorite music. And you don't have to be the best at any, but play it all well and you're going to work. And play all kinds of music. Because there's all kinds of good music, and some of that good music is bad combined in that, in that type of music. There's good and bad in all music. Try to play it all as well as you can and listen to when I do a lot of, I used to do a lot of country music at Capitol. I'd get some looks when I'm walking in the studio, like, where is he going? And every time I had to sit down, I thought of Buddy Harmon, who I thought was the greatest country drum I'd ever heard up to that point, or DJ Fontana, who was not as good as Buddy, because DJ never played studio stuff like Buddy did in Nashville and, or anything, you know, they put in front of him. But I just met DJ in New Orleans a couple of months ago for the first time in my life. Yeah. I just met Buddy. With Scotty. You did? Yeah. Is that right? Two weeks ago. I've never met him on oh. talk on the phone, but we've never met. He's, he's still working with the union there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's been there. For, I was at, with the, working at the union here when we'd be on the phone a lot because I'd have checks come in for some of the guys there and send them to him so we'll make sure they get them. Because if you send them to them, they get lost in the mail sometime, they change address and don't notify the L.A. local. And you don't want to send it back to the Federation, which has new addresses on everybody, because it might get lost again, so I'd send it directly to Buddy. So we knew each other from conversation on the phone and reputation, but we never met. He and really has quite an amazing reputation oh, as a drummer. Oh, man. He's so well-respected among all of the drummers, man, uh, particularly the country drummers. And if anybody want to play country music that's not basically a country player, Listen to him. That's, his, that's what I did. And I did a lot of, I'd go in there sometime, the bands have their own drummer. The guy says, you play this kind of music? I said, yeah. I'd go in my bag, get my washboard out, my, 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 my th thimbles. Say, you going to play washboard? Yeah. I didn't know you know how to play that. I said, did you hear such and such a thing? Say, yeah, that was you? No. But that's what God taught me. <laughs> Yeah, I did a lot of it. <laughs> Ken Nelson was the A&R, the producer for Capital Country Music, and he called me all the time. Did a lot of that. And you did an awful lot of, uh, of rock and roll, probably a good reason why they inducted you. Um, did you. Did you ever record something and were later surprised at how popular it became? Well, most of everything you did back in the days you were doing, you didn't think it was going to be historic. You didn't know that music it itself was going to be historic. For one reason is a record was a hit record today, and two weeks later you got another hit record. Two weeks later, another hit. It was changing so much. But the music itself got so big until it kept so many classical tunes. It's like, uh, like, uh, Michelangelo, I don't think he knew the Sistine Chapel was going to be what it became, you know? You have no idea. You're just playing it and you get off and go do another job. And then 
many years later it becomes great music, classical music. It's because the bulk of the people are listening to it and buying it. But as a jazz player, you didn't think much of that music musically, but it's your, 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 uh, your discipline that made you, like I said, play everything like it's your favorite music. Because that's the reason you're there, to, get, to sound like it's your favorite music and to make every take sound the same if it's number 40. Oh, we never got that far, thank God, but I mean, <laughs> I it's got say. to sound like that first take because see, in those days you had no videos. Seeing music covers a lot of sin. And when you uh, can play that music and it sounds like the first time you sat down to play it and it's take 12 before they select what they want, it's got to sound like it's the first take every time. So it, Enthusiasm, you got to become really expert at that. And this is what the main guys that was doing all of that work was able to do. Because they worked a lot together, and when they were working together, it was like family. You know, so somebody telling a joke all the time and keeping you laughing, keeping your spirits up. Because you know you got to play that same tune over again the same way, cause, so they could splice and that kind of stuff. So. But that's the important thing about that. You're turning out music on an assembly line, so it's got to be the same all the time. And it's got to maintain that intensity. And that was Earl Palmer. I, um, I think hearing from both Dave Bartholomew and Earl Palmer, we get a lot of different um, perspectives on um, the birth of R&B and rock and roll and um, the connection between the two. I think that last excerpt from um, Earl Palmer's interview just showcases his own um, thoughts on what music is to everyone and how it's so important that older and younger people can find a connection to it. And um, he just, he has so so many wise words to say about that. Thanks, Jonah. And uh, thank you, Dan, also for giving us so many insights in, in these uh, uh, stories behind those interviews and behind the music. It really gives us a totally different perspective. I hope everyone enjoyed our three-part series on rhythm and blues pioneers. Ain't it a shame that it's over? Uh, I'm sorry, isn't it a shame that it's over? <laughs> no, ain't that a shame. That works better. Final thought from me is just the gratitude I have to everyone who helped get these uh, interviews into our collection and the work that uh, this team does, including Alex, Suzanne, and Jonah for this podcast. It's always meaningful to me to share the stories of those I was blessed enough to hang out with. And um, with that, I hope somebody goes and plays a little Little Richard. Until next month, bye-bye. Goodbye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.